So uh, for the last panel, I guess as my, it's my moderator's prerogative to announce the rules. So I think I'm going to make it a little bit more exciting. If you want to say something, you can put up your tent. However, if you want to make a direct intervention uh, directly related to the conversation we're having, you can wave and I'll let you skip the queue, okay? Because just it's getting late. <laughs> yeah, it's basically a two-finger rule, but uh, with modifications. Okay, Eugene, you go first. Well, great. Well, first of all, a big thank you to uh, Paul and the University of Virginia for organizing this fantastic colloquium. Um, so the question that I want to pose in my book chapter, and this is, I have the question now, but I don't feel at all very, like I'm close to the answers, is really, what is foreign relations law? How does the restatement cover it? And is the particular is Restatement Fourth um, reaching the changes that have gone on since Restatement Third? And maybe if we think of Restatement Third as maybe not fully reaching the reach the changes that went on since Restatement Second, how do we how do we capture that in a world in which you have a very conservative restatement process in terms of tradition and looking to the prior model and so forth? Uh, so on the first question of of what is foreign relations law. So there's, of course, my, my stock answer is, I don't know, this may come from Curtin Jack's book, I'm not sure who, who, who's it from originally, but the law of the United States as it relates to foreign affairs, which is more accessible but similarly content-free. Um, if you ask the person on the street what is foreign relations law, I think they might today, and I will say that one of the things I've enjoyed about this um, colloquium and that I'm going to destroy about this colloquium is that we really haven't talked about the president uh, yet which is exciting and refreshing. And yet I think if you ask the person on the street what is foreign relations law, they might start to talk to you immediately about the travel ban case or maybe about trade law uh, or something about that, about topics that are not treaties or jurisdiction uh, or immunities. And when I think of, I think of those cases as having to be within our concept of foreign relations law and I guess I would frame my, how I would answer them is to start with the question of foreign relations law as a form of public law. And it faces the, in some ways, most acutely the core question of public law, which is how do you use law to regulate the actor who enforces the law, who carries out the law. Uh, and that's the core question of public law. That's a core question that I think is a particular challenge for the entire enterprise of the restatements uh, for, for reasons that Kurt alluded to earlier, and that means the restatement of foreign relations law is different. It's not a pri about private law. Uh, it's about public law. It's about a, you know, a deeply contested area of public law. Maybe all areas of public law, are, like all other areas of law, are deeply contested in some ways, but we, we feel this particularly. Um, and so I guess if I were to think ex ante what might go into a restatement of foreign relations law, I might want to start with public law principles. You know, the idea of good faith, um, the ideas of accountability, ideas of um, rule of law, transparency, regularity. That would be one way to, to frame a restatement as around public law principles. The choice that is, goes in to restatement Second restatement, third restatement, fourth has been to frame it primarily around specific discrete doctrinal topics. Uh, and that in and of itself is, is a choice that may make it particularly useful to, to a certain audience, uh, to judges, but may not aptly reflect how we want to, to conceptualize or reflect on the, the field. 
Now, going to this question of how do you constrain uh, the actor that carries out public law, if that is the core question of foreign relations law, and it, 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 I, I, to me it, it is in, the, in, in this context, and it may or may not be to you, then I think we're inevitably having a conversation about the separation of powers. And it's worth it here to think a bit about the one change from Restatement Third to Restatement Fourth, uh, which I don't think is inevitable. I think it's a, a path that not taken for, for various reasons, but the, that could have been taken, is I think that the idea of um, foreign relations law is being at its heart about international law, and international law as a source of constraint has weakened over this 30-year period. And I don't think there's an appetite uh, to do what Restatement Third did and the, what goes forward in Restatement Fourth, which will be to restate and sort of claim various substantive areas of international law uh, as foreign relations law. The sections on the law of the sea, on all the other areas that I frankly have not really read uh, in this, that second volume of Restatement Third that sits on my shelf more or less unopened relative to Restatement First. Not because I don't care about those, because I look to, to other um, places as well and I think about foreign relations law uh, there, there as different. But I think that if we were to have a conversation about um, Restatement fourth and international law, if there were to be that initial defining section separate from the introduction, but actually a separate, I don't think that it's a positive matter the reporters would, would define foreign relations law in the same way as consisting of A, international law as it applies to the United States, uh, and B, domestic law that has substantial significance for the foreign relations law of the United States. And we get that hint from the portion that um, uh, Ed and Bill alluded to in their, in their panel earlier. So if international law is, is sort of a matter of positive law, I think playing less of a role, my own impression is that in our move from, in the last 30 years, administrative law and administrative law principles have come to play more of a role. And that's partly just a function of the fact that in the, internationally in the post-Cold War era, there's been this vast explosion in international regulatory cooperation, which means that the agencies are dealing directly with their counterparts in a much more, uh, in, in a way that was present in the, at the time of the second restatement, but not at the same magnitude and, and the same level. Uh, that it is today, but also I think true that we've developed a set of administrative law concepts that are becoming bleeding more out of sort of classic, what you might think of as really domestic administrative law and kind of bleeding into our conception of, of public law. So to go back to the travel ban issue and to go to the trade cases, we're talking about it. Um, right now, the questions that are going on here are, what do you do when a president uh, makes up facts? Right, has discretion to find facts and doesn't actually rely on expertise, regularity, process transparency, um, ex ante, but rather um, makes up a fact, possibly with some animus behind it, and then uh, scrambles to bring um, in a very transparently um, results-oriented manner a veneer of process to that. And that's a question that I think we, we have to conceptualize as a question of foreign relations law today, not just because of the, of the current administration, but actually a broader question about how do these general principles come into, into foreign relations law. Now, as I said, if I think about what all this means for, for the restatement, 
I have my, I, I don't know what to do with, the, with this book chapter, whether to just say, let's just go straight to what should be and think about how I'd do a restatement if I had complete control and didn't know about process and councils and prior versions and conversations, or to skip all that and nod to that briefly, which is, is probably what I'll end up doing, and jump to the question of if, if I'm right about this, where would this fit in to further parts of a restatement fourth um, accepting that the structure of Restatement Fourth is going to look like the structure of Restatement Third and be organized around particular doctrinal topics. Uh, and the one that I'm most familiar with is the um, likely future section, if there are future sections, that's going to be on international agreements other than treaties, um, because that seems to me a pretty pretty obvious space where there's both a need, particularly if our, uh, as one or more of our treaty reporters think that treaties are edging towards death. Uh, and, and so I think about that, and, and I guess for me, some of the things that I would want to go have put into that section would, would first be um, some acknowledgement of the way that those international agreements are not just being made by the president, per se, but uh, thinking about the role of, of Congress and the role of Congress in relation to, and the role of administrative agencies as being the carriers of a lot of these decisions, as being in some pains the actor within the executive branch who is charged with the power uh, to make these, which raises some quite interesting questions about whether they're exercising sort of presidential diplomatic powers or instead congressionally delegated um, powers, who they are the agent of. And I, I think we have to think of administrative agencies as being, you know, having two principles, even in the foreign affairs context when they're um, regulating uh, with international counterparts to think about how you might change um, domestic regulation in, in their spaces and in the counterpart spaces. So that would be one way to have the restatement forth consider uh, non-binding law, soft law, um, We've talked a little bit about, um, so Bill's uh, conversation about comedy and thinking about something that is effectively a form of soft law. I don't know that you would put it that way. You would not, but it is, or, or a norm or a something that is not quite of grace, uh, but that is not law either. Okay, always. Yeah, all right, well, okay, then I, maybe I won't use Bill's view of comedy uh, on that. But I think there's a, there is a space for um, something in the restatement of foreign relations law about non-binding agreements, about soft law, about norms, in a way that we might not see that in the private law context. Uh, and that might feel unfamiliar to the whole restatement project because it's private law analogies are not as strong, um, but that does exist in a meaningful way in the public law uh, context. So those are a few of the ways in which I think this would be interesting to, to explore and flesh out, and I'd just love to get any views that people have um, about this. Hi, good, all right, good afternoon. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much again um, for organizing this, uh, Paul. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. And it's, as I mentioned to someone earlier, it's warmer and nicer than Chicago, I think. Um, but I, I was going to jump off, I think, from a comment that was made uh, or an observation, uh, uh, somewhat shockingly made by Curtis, who was one of the reporters of the restatement. And, uh, and that's right. I'm going to put it on the blog tomorrow. But um, it's. 
And one of the reasons I want to reflect on it is the following, and I mentioned this, uh, Curtis, on the, on the way back. It, it, there's a certain concern, uh, and I'm talking, and my topic is about stability. And one of the reasons why you may trade off on stability and the certainty that it gets is that maybe the underlying issue is political and involves value judgments. And I don't know if it's an issue like reproductive choice or something like that. If I tell any particular group, do you want to have a rule that is stabilized for the next 70 years on reproductive choice that is A, they'll say, yeah, if it's my rule. Uh, and if it's not your rule, would you rather have instability? And they will probably prefer instability rather than having uh, a rule frozen in that puts them in a sort of subservient status. And th there's a way in which I think a lot of the work that we're doing uh, has that element. It, it is a little bit like reproductive choice. It has redistributive consequences. But I think the veneer of neutrality and expertise weighs high. And I think it may be blinding us to some of these operations. And here is where my concern looms large because there's a lack of sometimes introspection. We have, and I mentioned this to Curtis as well, we have really full-blown, like on steroids, political economy accounts of Congress. Why it does things that don't look good. And sometimes why people act in self-interested ways. We have it of the president, and maybe we have billions of accounts of Trump about why he does what he does as a unique president. We are a little bit less so with respect to courts, especially when we're lawyers. The political scientists go off on the desert and they have their things, but once the judges, the people we hang out and maybe invite to conferences and maybe even bring them in from foreign countries, we're a little bit hesitant to give a full political economy account of their actions. And we don't see this in ourselves. And I've looked, and there's not been a political economy account I've seen of the American Law Institute. And there are a lot of reasons why it can be doing what there is. Bob Scott, okay. But there are a lot of reasons why it could be doing what it is. That is not because it's trying to have a neutral expert, blah, blah, blah. The way I, I feel <laughs> is that it seems that somebody's telling whoever the director of the American Law Institute is, keep those statements rolling, right? Get them out. Because if you don't get them out, people are going to ask, why are you here? And there's a sense in which, so there's a very uh, strange account where I looked at the restatement of conflicts of law. And I see uh, Bernard Curry and all these professors, almost from almost all the elite institutions, this is in the 1940s, condemning it viscerally. All of them wrote separate articles, by the way, as far as I could tell. And as far as I could tell, it meant nothing. It just went on, charged, they just completed the restatement process, ignored all of them. None of the issues that they put in were addressed. And, it's, and I say to myself, why was there even no back and forth? And in hindsight, I could say, they were wasting their breath. The machine had already, they had already commissioned the stuff and it wasn't going back. And I wonder whether part of what we see with the American Law Institute is not because people make the judgment, is this about different state law issues do we need to consolidate? It seems to me that part of what sometimes you may see is that two or three people who are of prominent status, usually at some university or something, may write and say, well, I study uh, foreign investment. I want to write a restatement of foreign investment. And I have the time. And I know three people who are willing to do it. And once that happens, there is, I think, a momentum, at least that's my initial thing, that is created. 
right? And yes, they anticipate that there are going to be a flood of responses as to why this is a bad idea, it's horrible, investment is not this, and people, and people, and, and they'll wait it out. And the shouting and the cuss, everything would just, and then they'll proceed because we have three or four people, one from Harvard, one from this, who are willing to start the hard work. And the reasons why they may start it may be nice, but a lot of it is because we have egos and we want to set the agenda. And if I write the restatement of copyright, by the way, you may think this is crazy. That's what's happening. There has been a proposal to write the restatement of copyright, and my bet is that it's going to happen, even though it's based on a statute. And you're going to say, why write a restatement based on a statute? A prominent copyright scholar wants to do it. A lot of objections have been voiced. And as far as I know, I don't know whether or not it's going to be stopped. I think it's probably going to happen. It has started. That's right. OK, there you go. So you, I'm always behind when these things come. But I have to say, that worries me a little bit. Because I do think that some of the issues that we see, and maybe once the a horse is out of the barn, there's nothing to be done we, because the restatement's out there. And if it's a restatement third, for better or for worse, once we start the process, we have to address it because if it's not like you can put the toothpaste back. People are going to start citing to it. Even if you disavow it, they're going to be citing to it. And I do think that we should be worried about that because even if you look through these processes, people joke about the restatement third and say, if you look at it, you know, it's just, you can read it and maybe it's partially the restatement, partially a, a biography of Lewis Hankin. You know, you could, it could serve two, two purposes. And then there's also the element of when you look and you see when there's feedback, when there are responses, how it works. I looked and I was making this comment about the restatement third. There's this issue about expropriation, which I discuss in my paper which is whether or not, the language is whether or not expropriation, uh, the, the compensation for expropriation should be uh, timely, effective, et cetera, the usual stuff that comes from. Uh, uh, and the first, uh, the second restatement, that is the first restatement of foreign relations that we had called the second restatement, said it should be. And then the second restatement, they wanted to take out the, the adjectives. Because there was some contention, mostly in the developing countries, about whether or not these, this was appropriate. And they put, the lang they put it in without the adjectives. Peter Troboff, and so, who was an investment lawyer, as far as I could tell, and some other people came back and said, no, you can't do this. And they, they rallied some people and said, you can't take them out. And they put the adjectives back in. And maybe that was the right result. But by every definition of any account of human behavior, this was politics. This should not be done by the members of the American Law Institute. Whether or not expropriation should be effective, timely, and, and making the judgment and then lobbying to have it put back in, done by people who all have skin in the game, it's not something that the American Law Institute ought to be doing. These are things Congresses and legislatures are designed for. They're expressly political games. You can decide, right, by trade-off, which one of those adjectives that you want to put in and which ones that you don't subtract. But the fact that this, that the final story about why those things remained was because a group of people pressured them to and told them this is important and have, just doesn't resonate with what we think we should be doing. It's not, this is not about expertise. And then the other part of the issue is that 
We do use a lot of technical words, and I understand that some of them are really technical when it comes to procedure, but this is my concern a little bit about procedure. And by the way, all kinds of procedures, that procedure has a lot of technical stuff. And a lot of times, even in a, a faculty conference, somebody would be talking and somebody would say the nucleus of the operative facts and comedy, and the law and economics people would start of looking around like, oh, we lost, we don't know what's going on. And the reality is that what at stake is something that belongs to everybody there. And most of those things, some of them can be technical, a lot of them are not. And a lot of processes, as people have brought this up, even that have the veneer of being neutral and often neutral, right, sometimes, can, when you look at all the implications they have for policy, invite a lot of feedback. Feedback that usually exceeds the interests and concerns of the experts who sit around the room. And this is part of the reason why I think, you know, I suspect we may see a lot of instability on the boundaries and sometimes in places we didn't expect. And the last thing I was going to suggest with respect to this is that the, the basis for the instability can't be something that you predict ex ante. This is part of the issue of politics. So back in the day, it was expropriation in the third restatement. Maybe five, six years after being so concerned that the world, that all these things are going to happen, most of the developing countries fell into line and this no longer, expropriation is now boring, right? Customary international law being the law, federal common law was put in, maybe not a lot of debate because who cares? It wasn't too problematic at that stage. Yes, Carter had made some claims about human rights, but how it played out. It turns out a couple of years later when alien tort statute was being fully litigated became the hot issue. A boring issue or something that seemed innocuous was transformed into a very salient issue. We can't always predict what the salient issues are. And if they become salient, we want people to fight it out and we want them to wrestle and make their decisions. I do worry some of you may say, well, let them do it then. Nobody, the restatement is not holding them down. But I do worry that a lot of things that have precedential value sometimes are given focal authority that far exceeds the focal authority they should be given. Uh, so for example, Paul may mention, he may say, or somebody may say, 75 courts have already cited the restatement fourth, 17 different jurisdictions. And I want to go like, wow. They really looked at what the American Law Institute did. They were bowled over by it and they cited it. it. It's probably not, that's probably not what happened. They cited it as a focal point. They said, ah, find something out there. These people from the restatement just wrote something, let's cite to it. And the problem is, when you use these kind of things, presidents, as a crutch, it could be because people are being lazy, people, they don't want to do the hard work because they feel, ah, maybe these people are bright, maybe they got the right law, let's do it. The problem is, even judges are supposed to really, really investigate and consider the reasons why they cite to people, what its value, whether it has functional implications. They're going to be the occasional, what I would call, uh, humbug type judge who's worried, maybe Escalia, whatever, who looks at every restatement and says, uh, do I really, really buy into this? And they complain about it. But for the most part, there's a risk that, they, that over judges may over-rely on it. And so you create this aura of epistemic knowledge that 
that 17,000 judges have cited to this proposal as if it means that 17,000 people have given full weight to the proposal. And what happens is that somebody may have thrown it in and they just kept on citing it because it's there. And now there's an avalanche of citations and it's never been fully investigated. And one day somebody comes up and says, ah, this takes away half of my money and half of my values. And people say, well, 17,000 judges have cited to it. That's just not... The, the epistemic value of those 17,000 judges may be next to nil. In fact, it may be worse than having three judges cite to it because the more they cite to it, the less value and the less epistemic input they probably put into it. So one of the concerns is that there is a risk that in some places, especially the more innocuous areas, it may create some stability, but it's too much stability because you actually probably want people to question, why is this there? What does it mean? Why is this the best way to understand comedy? Does prescriptive jurisdiction usually mean the same thing as jurisdiction for uh, judgments and stuff like that? Where did this come from? How did people need to ask questions? They can't always take for faith value something that is there, especially when it has implications for certain people's values, right? And their money and their concern. The last thing I was gonna one one, last, one little issue is that. I, one of the interesting things is that when we had these discussions and people say, let's bring in stakeholders, and people came in, and I know that uh, Curtis is concerned about uh, governors, some people are concerned about mayors, some people are this. One thing you rarely ever see when these stakeholders come in is like the Attorney General or Solicitor General for the state of Texas, or Missouri, or there are a lot of people that when these events evolve, especially if they're state officials, probably are going to be the key stakeholders. But somehow, because they don't fit into the rubric of foreign policy, you don't actually bring them into the room. And when these things break down, it may be because of their actions or pushback. State solicitor generals who don't like something that has been interpreted. And maybe they have these anxieties all along, but nobody really talked to them because they're really not experts in foreign relations law. And the problem is that they're not, but they may be one of the key stakeholders in the process. And that's how politics works, is that somehow the stakeholders we think of are not the real ones. They're out there, and the political process discovers them. I'm sorry. So since Jean and Gide have talked at a very high level of generality, and since my colleague Caleb Nelson is not in the room, I am going to go big picture, as he says. Just say a, a word about the princi principle of extraterritoriality is applied to federal statutes. The, the word I, I'm going to offer is uh, no one is as surprised as I am that I had something good to say about this principle, but I did, and it ties into Gide's remark. Um, I think if you look at it in a flexible fashion, and I know um, uh, other people uh, here have done so as well, and you look at it as it evolves over time, uh, you see that it might actually play a fruitful role in trying to adjust the uh, you know, Joseph Story principles of exclusive sovereignty uh, to the modern world. I, I think Story's view uh, has persisted because nations uh, continue to uh, rely upon territorial and uh, oceanic boundaries to define the, the scope of their 
primary power. But undeniably, you know, to pick up on what Gene said, over the last 30 years, the exclusivity of sovereign territorial power has been called into question. And I, I think, I, I perhaps as an outsider of this field, I'm not uh, entirely right about this, but there is a one-to-one -one correlation between the strength of moral principles and the egregiousness of human rights violations and the arguments for universal jurisdiction. Um, so that the principle of exclusive territorial sovereignty has been eroded at exactly the point in which international law, customary human rights law, and foreign relations law uh, is most controversial. I, I don't think that process is going to stop. Um, and I think what we have in the uh, restatement fourth is a provisional attempt to account for the situation in which we now find ourselves. I think it counts in favor of the presumption against extraterritoriality that it can, as um, Bill has uh, argued, uh, it, it can accommodate uh, these changes uh, as they go forward. I, I told Paul Stephen I think it would be an interesting exercise to imagine drafting the restatement fifth and perhaps psychoanalyzing the reporters and t talking about uh, their uh, pet obsessions. I'd be happy to contribute to that effort. <laughs> but I, I, I do want to just take up uh, Gide's comments about stability. Um, I, I agree with his conclusion that you can have too much stability, uh, but I think the uh, value of an effort like the restatement is that it doesn't freeze the law, it gives us some coherence to the law. Now, coherence is, is very hard to achieve, especially when you try to reflect the agreement of so many constituent groups, as uh, Bill said, or Ed said in the, in the, in the last uh, panel, but it nevertheless is inherently fruitful, even if, like sausage making, you sort of squirm at the particular negotiations and compromises that were made. I, I do think it's the obligation of those of us in the academic branch of the legal profession to offer a degree of coherence, not in the expectation that it will be preserved uh, indefinitely, but with the uh, hope that it will lead to uh, evolution of the law in a direction that will allow future generations to impose their own coherent uh, vision on it. So I am much less pessimistic about the work of uh, the restatement and the, and the American uh, Law Institute. Um, I, I think it's necessary for what we do and for us to justify uh, uh, our role uh, in the legal profession. And again, if you want to intervene, uh, you can. So, George, um, about the presumption against extraterritoriality, this is something that Sam and I are writing. Oh, the microphone. Where's the microphone? 
George, I was um, fascinated by your paper about um, the presumption against extraterritoriality. Um, I think, um, I know Bill is working on something. Sam and I have an extensive discussion in a draft that we have. And one of the things that was apparent and kind of counterintuitive is how it, it sort of evolved, right? I mean, there were sort of different senses of it. One is, that I think the modern sense is sort of a presumption about legislative intent, that Congress, when it enacts a statute, sort of um, enacts it within a set territory. It originated, it, it was especially important for the United States, like, you know, in schooner exchange, I mean, it was about the idea that um, sovereigns were autonomous and numinous within their borders, which was very important for the new republic, right? And then, and then in an intermediate, the Holmesian phase, sort of, there's sort of this beginning of an understanding that certain types of enterprises like an antitrust conspiracy were sprawling and had elements overseas and so forth, but that this was sort of a special situation. And so, I mean, you know, so I'm just wondering if, if in your account, um, does that change things? I mean, is, do, you, do you feel like basically, it, are, those, are, those, are those sort of consistent with your, 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 your sort of vision of all this and so forth? Second, I mean, I have a lot of things to say about what Jade and Jean, I mean, obviously, I, I mean, I, I, I'm gonna be on the panel um, tomorrow and I have a very strong thesis that the fourth restatement is sort of a defensive, defensive restatement based on sort of perceptions that that the third restatement had sort of been been a little too aggressive in in how it sort of um, created this this idea of a dialogue between international law and U.S. law and, and you know and and so forth. But but I mean I guess I guess I guess the question is and and this is sort of your comments sort of does that does that make it any less legitimate? I mean sometimes sometimes and and maybe it can't be as sort of creative or sweeping, you know, but sometimes the, the, the path of the law goes into different areas and the restatement is trying to bring it back to, a, to an area where it's, it, it's, it's basically, you know, what the courts on the ground are doing are, are, are being guided, um, it's a compass or so forth. And so, I mean, I, I just, and, and I, if you see my remarks, I mean, I don't have an answer to this question myself, but it seems to me that's what this restatement is trying to do. It's trying to sort of um, point to true north and sort of realign what's going on in the, in the, in the courts and, and so forth. They've sort of gotten out of whack over 30, 30 years, and so, so I'm wondering if, if, if there's sort of a, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's not as inspiring maybe, but I mean, maybe that's a valid role for a restatement, right? And it's not, it's not some political economy story or some, some story of some other type of story. Anyways. Okay. Let's do three questions again. Yeah, go ahead, Paul. So uh, thank you to all three. Um, I'll, I'll try and be quick. Um, uh, as to Jean's remarks, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm you sort of, in a, in a way this is responsive to the GDA as well. Uh, Maybe just a quick description of how we organized the way we did. Uh, that um, uh, there was uh, the leadership of the ALI felt it was time to do something, but it was also aware that there were uh, deep division among uh, respected stakeholders as to what we should do and what it should end up at. 
Um, and we're also aware of articulate critics, in particular Gide, who are saying, for reasons you've shared with us now, you know, this is just not a good idea in general. And, and the uh, decision was made to proceed incrementally, uh, to treat it as three pieces, which meant necessarily there was stuff left out. Uh, more or less, the stuff that we thought would be the hardest was left out. Um, and perhaps from some perspectives, it was overstaffed in order to make sure that it was a big tent, you know, that we had eight reporters on the project instead of like four for arbitration. Um, and, uh, you know, the hope is that we demonstrated that it could be done and that some of the more controversial things might now be taken. But mindful of the idea that to do this is in some sense a political act. I, I, I think uh, the director of the ALI at the time uh, was probably a little bit nervous that I had written in that genre and contributed to the literature about the political economy of restatements. And you know, there was some nervousness about uh, you know, bringing somebody like that into the process. Um, and I, I think, in, at the end of the day, the defense for the process, and I, of course, align myself with colleague, my colleague, George Rutherglen, because whenever we disagree, it's because he's right and I'm wrong. Uh, that, uh, you know, the claim ultimately is one about transparency. Uh, you know, that the restatement, as long as it's clear what its limits are, and as long as its bubble of pretentiousness is pricked, you know, can make a useful contribution to a conversation, as long as you understand that's all it's doing. And, and, uh, and I think that's worthwhile. Um, you know, GDA alluded to the copyright project. Uh, it is underway, although it's also been fiercely contested. And I think there's an ongoing conversation as to whether it might be relabeled as something other than a restatement. I don't think they've made a decision on that. But, um, you know, that, that in a way, that's good. You know, we're, we're talking about it. And, and um, you know, it, it's useful to get smart people to, uh, and everyone in this room is a smart and capable person, to get these people involved in matters of public policy, even though there are limitations in the process, but never lose sight of the limitations of the process. So I, I hope at the end of the day, uh, the uh, author of the fifth three statement will say, well, there are a lot of limitations, but we, at least we made these three panelists happy with what we did. So, so can I ask you, as the one of the founding fathers of the restatement, and since you're all here, Parent. right? Parents, okay. So, but, uh, <laughs> I'm not <laughs> in any case. So, yeah, it's good. I was trying to find a snarky remark, but I didn't, I didn't find one. <laughs> Grandparent. <laughs> no, no, joking. Uh, no, so, so, so to put Gide's question, sort of pose it directly, right? Uh, were there any areas where you did feel like the law wasn't all that clear, but you stated it anyway, right? Like, does this account? Do you, as drafters of the restatement recognize this account in any way or not? That's what I'm guess curious about. Can I two-finger on that and, and ask, so if the restatement mission is to codify and progressively develop, which I understand to be the overarching issue of the restatement, uh, I, my instinct from Ed was codify, not progressively develop, no, no, no development. We might think of Restatement Third as having been the critique that is being labeled thrown here at Restatement Third as it progressively developed or tried to. 
Uh, so I guess I'd ask I'd add on to that question to you, founding parent. Uh, was there just codifying here? And was that a choice? If there was progressively development, what was it? Uh, <laughs> I have a, an urgent intervention. Do you want to go first? <laughs> <laughs> There's some of each, right? And and it's a it's a continuum. Um, I think that we did we did uh, make we didn't just restate. We made um, we made choices. Obviously, we tinkered around the edges of things. Um, but but a restatement doesn't work, and it's not influential if it departs too much from the mainstream. You actually need in order for it to be influential, you actually need courts to rely on it. Um, and um, I'm I'm an advisor to the conflicts restatement and. Uh, they've made a number of errors in this regard, which have now been corrected, but they decided that they were going to dispose of domicile and substitute habitual residence because that made more sense. And the advisor said, you're crazy. No one will follow you. You know, you can't just reinvent the area of law. What you could do instead is take the concept of domicile and redefine it to be something more like a habitual residence. But you can't just throw the whole thing out, right? So one can do that with the presumption against extraterritoriality. You can take it and interpret it more flexibly. But you've got Morrison and you've got RJR and you have to live with them. And if we said courts shouldn't follow the presumption against extraterritoriality, they should do 403 instead, no one would follow us. And so that's not fruitful, I think. Um, so that's... That's my partial defense of conservatism. I want to, since I've got the mic, I want to respond very briefly to something Gide said. Um, sort of criticizing courts for using the restatement as a crutch. Uh, it would be wonderful if all judges faced with these issues were willing to do the hard work of figuring out what customary international law is and how all of these doctrines fit together. But that is a world that exists only in the mind of a political scientist. And in the real world, um, judges are really bad at this. And one of the values of the restatement is a way of bringing coherence, as George said, and um, bringing expertise and making it available in a way that's usable by judges and usable by litigants. It's open to challenge, and, and litigants can say, no, that's not customary international law, here's what you should follow, or that's not the right interpretation of form non-convenience. Those, those things are open, but the, the, relying on the restatement is not perfect, but I think it's generally better than the alternatives. No? Uh, okay, so uh, shall we, or anybody else wants to intervene on this point? Yeah. No, I mean, let's try to, if we're on the same topic, let's continue yeah. that, and then the topic will move on. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, these things, um, your question and today's criticism, I think, are, are both important and central, but also difficult to reconcile. I mean, to, um, to codify something is to engage in its development. And that's part of what Jade is saying, I think, concerning his concerns about the political engagement of the ALI or its, its role uh, as an actor. And I think that's especially true when you are dealing with an area when you're not codifying the law that emerges from a set of um, state common law judgments. Um, you're counter-codifying to an extent, and you're counter-codifying in areas where 
Congress and other relevant political actors at the national level have intervened. Um, I nonetheless, having said that, which comes across as a, as a defense, furthering, doubling down on my defense of codification as the sole and conservative mm -hmm. extent of the ALI mission, I mean, um, I, I disagree with a number of the factual premises in today's criticism. I mean, for, to take the last one I think you mentioned, there, there are tons of instances in which um, non-expert participants engaged quite critically with this process. Um, I mean, you, we had people very much like unto the Solicitor General for Texas or a family law lawyer from Oklahoma or a person, a, a retired partner in New York who opined and, and uh, whose views were mentioned. So there's much more widely canvassing. I agree with you at the same time. You know, it's completely important to, to keep these um, concerns in mind that this is uh, a ultimately political process, that there is um, an assumption of authority due to convenience and, and, and social capital as opposed to epistemic quality. But I do agree with Bill's um, comment to generalize it slightly, which is consider the alternatives. Um, and I think the alternatives we have here are not simply engagement by Congress uh, or the President in um, co coherent national policymaking and, and legislation or regulation, but it's instead um, deference by um, courts or other actors to either A, scholarship, um, or um, B, um, the more uh, polemical judicial opinions which choose to take on another, a number of issues as dicta. And I think there are plenty of examples we can think of within this field in which there has been deference to um, non-transparent, poorly vetted scholarship Alternatively, um, there has been deference to particular judges who happen to take an interest in foreign relations law and write extensively and often not very well informed views about areas that are beyond a particular decision. So I guess consider the alternatives. Mm -hmm. uh, Beth also had an intervention. Oh, you also have an intervention? Yeah, uh, uh, Beth, Beth first. Oh, uh, uh, well. I is, it, is it working? This is a foreign consumer of restatements, and it's a slightly rambling but relevant, I hope, intervention. The idea that it's going to be a code, I think, is, uh, is, 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 uh, is almost utopian. I was a member of a law reform body which was set up in my country in the mid-1960s to make recommendations for legislation. Legis the, our legislature never had time for private law reform, or well, they did sometimes. They were supposed to be codes, they were supposed to be codifying areas of common law, it didn't work. We morphed into something that produced very scholarly um, reports, which set out the alternative ways forward, which set out the advantages and disadvantages. And those in our system kind of function in an analogous way to your restatements. Courts pick them up. They sometimes say we don't like this. But it, it's, it's picking up the point that you made and you made really that it, it, it is not just one person putting an individual point of view. It is a consequence of an abdication by the political the political branch is not, was not interested in, in my case, in private law 
but they, they had a corpus which enabled, enabled a wider range to be got. Uh, and it also, it also has been influential in judicial development of the law because they, the ju judges are not always confident that the advocates in front of them are putting all the material in front of them. And so I think that, and I over my years as a scholar and as a judge and as a law reformer, I've mined the various restatements because it's actually very difficult for an outsider to find out what American law is. But you get quite a good range of what it is at one moment in time. So I, 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 I think that I, I, I'm not in favor of the code approach, but it, it can look like a code, but it's not a code, and it shouldn't be treated as a code. The, the comments and the, those parts of it, to us foreigners, are almost as valuable as the text. Yeah. Okay, Bets, and then we're, we'll give the panelists a chance to uh, respond. Yeah, yeah I, I would just uh, speak in terms of those for, for political reasons, political legal reasons, who, who opposed the development of the fourth restatement because um, we, we um, were doing quite well with the restatement third and knew that things would only get worse if, <laughs> if, if the, the current law was, was codified. Um, a, a, an opinion I expressed at the one meeting I was invited to before the process started, at which I quickly realized the decision had already been made. Um, and, you know, I, I understand the decision. I, I can't really quibble with that. But, um, but as Shade was talking, you know, his written piece talks about bringing stability to the law. And, you know, in the political struggle and the shifting tides of power, the moment at which you bring stability and finish the restatement can be quite, imp quite crucial. Um, and you know, it, it could it could be that a decade from now, um, relieved that it happened now and wasn't postponed because things could only get worse. But um, I mean, it may may well only get worse. But to to, to freeze the law at a particular moment is a, a, you know just a very important, a crucial a crucial choice. And um, from you know, my optic of, of the alien tort statute, this is, this is a pretty bad moment right now. And, uh, you know, maybe we could have jumped at it and gotten it all done in 2004 and 2005. We, we might have been a lot better off. But um, so, yeah, I, just to, to share that, that view that, that, yeah, of course, you know, law is politics and politics is power and the state of international law in the United States right now represents the where where the power is uh, and that's you know that's not it's not surprising to to any of us you want to respond or any of you want to respond to anything that's been said so far i guess i will i will go going back to this question of codify taking codify not to mean necessarily write a code, but a more positive description of the law to positively describe versus to progressively develop, which would be to, to influence the future development in a way that goes beyond the um, positive description. I guess the, the concern that I am thinking of flagging the piece is is not so much with the, what I see as the choice of restatement fourth to focus on being positive. Um, sort of a, a positivist about the law, uh, which I 
I think may be more, more valuable in the public law restatement context than in a kind of private law restatement context, but rather just the question about what counts as foreign relations law and the claim that a lot of what counts as foreign relations law, the things that we can easily count as foreign relations law are the things that we counted last time around and early before that as foreign relations law, that there is a, a way in which the framing and the models set by the, the prior restatement and the whole way in which the field is, is framed is an inherently um, tradition-bound process that's going to be slow to take into account um, new developments or shifts where something that was a fairly small piece of the field has become a much bigger piece of the field. And so I guess the question I have is how do restatements, not first, not initial restatements, but rather subsequent restatements in a pattern, how do they do something that's not new about a particular descriptive section of what is the law on treaty termination or something like that, but how do they do something new about what constitutes the field? And that's the question that I'm, I'm posing. Do you want to defend uh, yeah. Could I add uh, something quickly? I think the, the comments made about the values of these things, I agree. My concern is that the values being described do not fully reflect the trade-offs. Um, somebody comes in and says, my name is John Yu, mm -hmm. and I'm writing something, and I'm a Supreme Court judge, justice, and I want to cite to it. When I cite to it, I'm, I have to, I'm, I'm being accountable. I, I'm citing to John Yu. I, it's try, I have to own the fact that I'm citing to him and not somebody else. It's more transparent. I'm citing to a prominent conservative scholar who's known to do this. He doesn't reflect 27 people who've come to, he doesn't do all these things, everybody knows. The problem you have to ask yourself is, let's say John Yu gets the same thing into the restatement, same thing. The restatement, just like the law. So, I mean, whatever, maybe he was clever, whatever it is. The question is, do, does the court fully understand the epistemic and philosophical value of these things? What's more likely? Are they going to think, because it's in the restatement, right, like in the restatement third, it must be. Look at all the fine minds who've looked at it, right? Whereas I think if they cite to John Yu, everybody kind of knows. All the justices around the table are looking and go like, I know what you're doing. It's clear. I'm going to do this. I'm going to cite to Beth. I'm going to cite to Christina. I'm going to do this. And everybody can lay their things on the table. And it's clear to everyone about what everyone is doing. The problem I have is that the cult of expertise can often be used. And this is sort of the problem of using it as a sort of crutch to, to disguise this. And, and sometimes a person is aware. Let's say if I'm the low-level judge, I may be aware. If I cite to John, I might be in trouble. If I cite to this person, people are going to do this. But if I default to this, it's easy. I'm not too interested in foreign relations. Well, I kind of like bankruptcy. I'll get this cited, and we'll move on. And then somebody else will cite the fact that I cited. Next thing we know, there are 400 sites, and nobody's ever thought about the principle. And that, I think, is what worries me. That's the trade-off. And I don't know where we've fallen. Maybe the expertise trade-off and the clarity trade-off is much more worth the fact that too much will be attributed to it. And I think, Paul, you brought this up. And I don't know. You say, this is what you want the judges to think. Do you know whether the judges are really thinking this? Or they look and go like, this is just as good as a code. I don't ever have to read an international law case book till I die. I'll just cite the foreign restatement. And, and, and the clerks do it, and then they can move on to say, that's, 
they've not done what you've wanted them to do. And the fact that bureaucrats and others will do this is very Bureaucrats don't want to engage in difficult issues. They want somebody to tell them, oh, they've looked at it, let's move on, especially if they have no skin in the game. And that, but the parties before them may have skin in the game. One party there is probably yelling, that's so, that runs against my values. And they're going like, well, I don't care about your values, and some 50 smart people have said this, so what do I care? And that I, that I worry about. I want the judge to really struggle. Let them know that John said this, the other person this, Curtis said this, and this individual, uh, Beth or somebody wants this other thing, and grapple with it and not have any veneer or something they can hide under. You want to yeah, I'll, I'll two figure on that today. So <laughs> well, what if it, the site were to Bradley, Cleveland, and Swain? Or to you, Coe, and Hathaway? All right, or you have some configuration. I think what the restatement is doing is signaling it's a, a consensus, and it's transparent that it's signaling a consensus, that the design of the reporter structure was to say, whatever we're doing, guys, we're going mainstream here. Uh, we're requiring people who are taken not to necessarily agree on things, but to be um, collectively, if you average them out, to be within the mainstream of the field. Is that not itself a transparent signal? It may not be a signal you like, no, but I, it no, strikes I, me I, as I guess, can I interject very quickly? Uh -huh. I just, the problem I have is this, uh, uh, the, the real blinders come in the following way. I say, who is uh, Curtis? You say Curtis is like this. Who is Swain? Swain is like this. Who is this? You say Una is like this. And the problem is, if you think that the only distributional problems come about because there are certain academics who have different values about what the foreign relations law ought to be, and as long as those academics who, who have for the idiosyncratic reasons whatever values they prefer can come to agreement, 90% of the people there may say, I don't care what Curtis thinks, what Una thinks or whatever, I don't think this should be the case. And that, it may be orthogonal. The value structures they're feeling with, what's important to them may not be reflected. These are just academics. It's just Curtis and Una. Curtis and Una do not encompass. The, the fact, I'm sorry, this is something that academics do a lot. Somebody will say, I'm on the right. And the other person will say, oh, I'm on the left. And we said something, it must be true. Well, there's a left-right dimension in the academy that may not reflect what a lot of people out there are struggling with, right? And by the way, both of them may be on the same point. They may feel the State Department Legal Advisor's Office should be the most powerful thing in the world. And maybe the big value out there is that somebody wants to flatten the State Department Legal Advisor's Office, but they all have institutional something that, or professional things that connect them to that. And I think this is, by the way, we do this a lot when we have judges who say, oh, I'm going to bring colleagues on my faculty who are right-wing. They will support the judge. And, and you're supposed to pacify everybody with that facade? No. They know that there are reasons why a right-leaning judge on Columbia's faculty may support his left-leaning colleague that, have nothing to, that, that should never pacify them because they're colleagues, and colleagues may support colleagues. And using that as a facade to say, oh, this person is going to be a wonderful judge that would never deal with your problem, is, is, is just wrong. It's wrong, wrong, wrong. And it's so transparent when it's being done. Our other panelist <laughs> has an intervention. Well, I, I, I think this might be a description of fairly routine issues. I doubt in major controversial human rights issues that the restatements are taken as some kind of authoritative source that, that cannot be questioned. Um, I, I, I think judges 
have enough suspicion of the academy and its uh, you know prior moral commitments that they are they are skeptical even behind the veneer of the American Law Institute. Okay. Well, we'll go back to our regular queue, and we're going to go this way around the table because the, this side of the table had their uh, uh, dance up first. So. Yeah. So. This question is inspired by Jean's paper, but it's really for everyone. So I'm interested in your thought experiment, which you don't endorse, but you throw kind of out there very quickly, that we take the foreign relations, uh, take the international law out of the foreign relations restatement, and maybe have a separate restatement of international law. So my first thought was that would seem to be almost impossible in light of Anthea's work and some of the others, like. Paul and Pierre and Mila, who have worked on, and others who have worked on the Comparative International Law Project, uh, that would seem to be an almost impossible task. And some people here who have experience in foreign legal systems could speak to that better. But then I see you go on and say it would actually be a way to promulgate US-oriented perspectives on international law, which apparently would be a completely different thing than foreign relations law. So I'm interested in that, that no doubt there are US perspectives on international law, um, but it's an open question as to whether that's a normatively desirable thing and something that we should encourage. Um, you know, there's no doubt that reasonable people can disagree in good faith on what international law is or what it should be, but I see no reason why that should correspond with someone's national legal system uh, that they happen to come from, any more than there should be a Virginia or a California or a New York uh, approach to federal law. Um, it's just not clear why, why someone's background in, in a legal system um, should, should give them an orientation uh, that's normative, normatively desirable toward international law. Um, so, and if so, is that really then international law, if it's a US-oriented perspective? Um, so I'm interested in your thoughts and anyone else's on how that, how that would look. Well, my comment is also uh, taken up by Jean's desire to talk about the president. Um, and so one of the things that I was thinking during this panel, which was, you know, the, it, the role of international law and foreign relations law is so mutually constitutive. I mean, we, you know, really understanding and having an idea of consistent and coherent foreign relations law to some extent requires some sort of an idea of consistent and coherent international law itself. And, you know, since the time of the Laster Statement, you know, we've really kind of had the you know, the Berlin Wall has fallen, we've had a major push towards institutionalism. I mean, like, the, the international law that is embedded um, has, is so different, to me, it looked so different um, than the international law that existed in the 1980s. Um, I think that it's probably, a lot of things have changed, but the international law perspective, kind of like what the law was that was being reflected into foreign relations law, and now I wonder, you know, on the timing side, whether or not we're seeing the cliff of that, you know, whether the current crisis in international law is, is it one presidential blip or is it a major realignment, you know, the rebuilding of walls except to the east instead of, or building them up to the west instead of the east. And so, you know, kind of how much of 
what the project is doing now is itself kind of a function of international law and kind of an, how much it's driven by the international law of its time. Um, so my um, comment uh, that I raised the placard was also about um, uh, Jean's paper. Um, I agree um, with uh, part of what Paul said. Um, not that I disagree with the other part, but I want to emphasize the part that I particularly want to agree with at this juncture. Uh, and that is um, that um, to a degree the traditionalism and, and narrow focus of the topics um, to this point are an artifact of um, sort of the agenda process uh, and not necessarily part of the commitment um, uh, of the restatement um, in general. And so I think your intervention remains timely um, is the plus side to that. And I think also, but I don't think you can generalize too much about the future arc of it by virtue of the initial topics that were taken up. Um, I think, and I agree with much of what you say about the, um, the need to consider these new processes uh, and the regulatory or administrative turn in foreign relations law um, going forward. The question I think that's difficult and I'd, I'd like to see you um, instruct um, the process more on is, you know, how does all that write? I mean, that's one of the difficult things. In, in considering a lot of the big picture issues in this field, I think uh, reporters and the process will face the question, you know, what exactly are we to wedge into uh, what we have ourselves as artifacts of a recognized process, which includes generating black letter sections uh, and, and then comments and notes. What, is, what would go in the black letter sections? And I think one of the concerns we might have is we'll face something like we see uh, already in the, uh, the volume one and volume two problem you recognize in the restatement um, third, um, in which you have sort of um, trans-substantive issues in volume one and a bunch of substantive stuff in volume two that uh, is less read. It is domestic and international to some degree, but it's also about the procedure and the substance. And I think as we go into an ad law focus, we end up replicating some of those same quandaries because ad law, at least as I experienced it, I've never instructed the core course, but as I've experienced it and used it, has some of the same issues like it's trying to describe procedural dimension at the same time, take on particular substantive um, areas, social security, uh, food and drug, what have you, and use them. And it's often hard for it to sort out exactly uh, what should fall within the course of instruction and, and um, uh, education and what should fall outside of it. And now imagine you have um, to write um, the sections concerning ad law uh, without the benefit of the APA. You know, and I think then you start confronting the issues about how you would, um, the challenges you have in starting to write about the role of soft law. Um, and I think you'd end up with a lot of open-ended propositions with which no one could disagree, uh, everyone could uh, agree perhaps to the uh, creating a democratic deficit in the con as a result, uh, but um, I don't, I, it's just hard to figure out exactly the, the way you generate content. Maybe answer some of the questions, I guess. All right, well I think I, I get some of these at least. Um, so let me go from, from back to front, so Ed, that's a, a great comment, maybe I, I won't be so quick to assume a future process and structure to, to the restatement, and I will think about how one might translate what I'm suggesting into, into draft language. I did a, 
um, a paper for the BYU symposium that you were also a part of where I did try to think about what might the language actually look like. And so that's something that I, in, in particular that with treaty interpretation, so that's something that I you know, would, will think about trying to do more here. And I think you can, at the principles level, I, think, I don't think you need a whole volume two to sort of set out principles of public law. I think that you can do that in, in a section, in an introduction, in ways that are, are more, more constrained and therefore within the broader um, topics. Uh, the question about, um, I think there are, for, for soft law, for example, I think there are some hooks that one can use, the executive order on international regulatory cooperation, right? You have an executive order. It's out there. It's about how agencies are supposed to engage abroad if they're doing big rulemaking. That is a foreign relations law piece. It's part of international agreements and commitments. It's also a, a legal frame that you can use to structure uh, and that I think is non-controversial as it exists in positive law, right, and, and could, could start with. Um, uh, tying this a little bit, I think that your, your question on soft law ties a bit to, to Rachel's point, which is, is international law just different? from it, how it was in the late 1980s. And I think one of the way international law is different is a much more um, inclusive of things like soft law. It's recognized now, it's taught in international law in a way that it wouldn't have been uh, at that period of time. So I think there's also an international law uh, hook to bring this in and a lot more, I, will, I wanna think more about that question, which I really love about what more, the changes in international law should bring into the into the restatement, not just the way in which U.S. law may have um, pivoted in certain ways toward towards dualism, not just the ways in which administrative law has crept into foreign relations law, but also the ways in which international laws changes may be um, shaping the field. Um, so, to Kevin's question, I, yes, I I put that in largely as a fun placeholder. Uh, to try, there are sort of two questions that I'm interested in. I don't know if they go in this book chapter or not, and some of you may already know the answers to them, but one of them has to do with the question of the idea of a restatement second of foreign relations law, the, the initial restatement of foreign relations law. I've wondered how much that was inspired by the whole International Law Commission and the fact that this kind of codification project was going on abroad by another sort of the idea. And so that, that was a, a sort of a flag to think about the ways in which this may relate to um, international processes. On the American perspective on foreign relations law, I don't know if an American perspective is normatively superior. I do think that if we are trained as American lawyers, we are going to have particular positions that are inevitable and kind of baked in when we even don't think about that. And I say that from my, my time at the Yugoslavia War Crimes Tribunal, uh, where I got there and every lawyer was from all these different countries and we were all very open to discussion and debate, but we were so framed by our starting premises, particularly about questions of procedure um, and international criminal procedure, interestingly, a little bit less so about, about substance. Uh, so now, is that, a, is that a good thing? Is it a desirable thing? Maybe, maybe not. The reason I have that in there is to remind myself, in part, that I, I want to look a little bit more at the another thing that really is interesting, me, which is the Harvard Project. Um, where they about it's almost we're coming up almost on the hundred year anniversary of the Harvard codifications of international law, where Harvard went through and did these sort of initial private codes that were really really quite fascinating, um, and just to think about and those projects were were influential. They're forgotten now because they're kind of three layers down, uh, right? The things that cited to them are now being cited to by other things and by other things. But if you dig down. Um, 
um, you get to them. And it'd be interesting to trace out whether those have mattered, have they been influential, um, and so forth. So I'm not, I'm not sure I'm committed to the idea of a restatement of international law. In fact, it may very well be a terrible idea. Uh, but I, I th wanted to throw it out there to leave it as my, for myself as a seed for, for thinking about. Okay. Uh, George, I, I just wanted to uh, mm -hmm. pick up on what, what Kevin said. I, 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 and what Jean just, just said, I, I think where you end up in international law will be deeply influenced by where you begin with your training as a, a lawyer from the Netherlands or a lawyer from Quebec um, or a lawyer from England. Uh, and, and, you know, to that extent, distinctive national perspectives can be valuable, not because they justify provinciality, but on the contrary, because they counteract it. And I took Kevin to be taking that as almost a premise, right? The, but, and, but to be questioning its normative it appeal. Is, yes. Yeah. And whether mm -hmm. we should be encouraging it or yeah. mm -hmm. nipping the butt yeah. mm -hmm. or something else. Okay, well, we have only. One question left on the queue, so uh, maybe we'll get to go for dinner a few minutes early if our parents will let us. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry, Ralph. Oh, no, you just—I did not miss you. I just, okay, no great. <laughs> but are you thirsty? <laughs> After I announce dinner, somebody has another. <laughs> no joking. Uh, AJ, you go ahead. So this is um, this is a question for um, uh, for Jaday, just to I don't know probe a little bit into whether you know your your concerns about over reliance at all are gauged to sort of the nature of the legal standards that are being um, articulated. I think sometimes in frontier areas, restatements have articulated standards that in their formulation are value-driven to a degree that anyone applying them would apply them in a certain way, even under a totality of circumstances approach, where down the road you would expect the application of that standard to crystallize into particular rules that may find their way into the next restatement. Um, from 50,000 feet, I mean, with respect to this restatement, it strikes me that at the frontier areas, the standards are stated in such a way that the values that will inform the application will derive more from the facts that the decision maker views as relevant as opposed to the way that the standard is articulated. And I just wonder if, if that's true, the extent to which that might alleviate your concerns about this particular restatement project as opposed maybe to some others. No, I was I was joking. You can, we have plenty of time. Okay. Uh, well, then last. Anybody else? This is your last chance to. Uh, you know, I would say in response to AJ, I, the Supreme Court relies upon the, the restatement of agency in an unrelated field, employment discrimination law, and they're quite critical. You know, they they basically say, you know, we can't use this subsection of the restatement on vicarious liability, it just doesn't make sense. So I, and I, I think there's a lot of critical attitude in, among the judges, so. Do you have any closing words? Or you... Sorry, Joe, I was gonna say, I agree with you. I, can't, I think my only concern is, um, uh, I'm very, very um, partial to Dicey and his description 
of the common law, but I'm also partial to his criticism of the French system. And one of the things, this goes to what he says, is that he says, I, when we make the law, it's concrete things that come up. And when we develop the common law, two people have a dispute. They come before us. We look, and I now have to look at the dispute and define what I think the response would be in respect to the dispute, et cetera, et cetera. And then he describes what he's making the law. In the French system, he says, they sit around and they pass these statutes imagining what the world would be. And he says, it's just, he, he, he thought, and he thought that it wasn't law, that that's what they were doing. And part of the problem is that it's not too much that it's value-laden or whatever. It's that you'll be, when, when the things unravel and when issues come up and this, uh, the ways in which they come up and what's at stake may sometimes overlap, but sometimes it may be orthogonal, right, to how the restatement is written or whatever. But yet... If their statement has touched upon that area, maybe balancing other concerns and values and fixing the, the, the judge gravitates towards that rather than saying, look, the particular context in which this comes up illuminates different sets of things that raise different empirically contestable premises, et cetera, et cetera. And I think maybe I'm more partial to the approach that that's how this should be uh, going. Now, with respect to this project, as I said earlier, once the ship has sailed, then I do think that one has to make a judgment because I think Beth is right. I mean, we're no longer in a world where we can ask the question, is this good or not? It's, it, because if it's not the restatement fourth, you're going to have the restatement third still playing the role. And then depending on what your concerns are, if you think the restatement fourth is worse uh, from your value perspective. But what I'm trying to say, yet I am of the view that once it's sold, it's probably a worthwhile project to try to deal with it. But then the question is that we should be critical of these kinds of claims, which is, should this ship have, have ever sailed? Like, should, should they have done this thing they did when they wrote the restatement second? And I'm skeptical uh, that the world would be in a worse place if we didn't have a restatement of foreign relations law at all. Um, that's... <laughs> no, Ralph has to come back after all. <laughs> yeah, no, go for it. Go for it. And then Beth. So maybe because it's about ambition, because uh, GJ made the, uh, the frontal attack on this. Um, Dicey, of course, to start with Dicey. Dicey is the one who himself, when he writes the Conflict of Laws book, draws abstract proposals from the concrete case law that he has before him, right? So he's responsible for some of the same. But we have... <laughs> Dicey. <laughs> yeah, it's, or it's the whoever. Um, we have debates about the restatement that are a little like debates that have been held before about codification in Europe and have been held before about the, uh, the restatement in its history. And we may not have to rehash those, right? So the first restatement tries to say we can say what the law actually is, has in that sense a strictly very positivist um, perspective on that, and is criticized for that, right? By saying first you claim that the law is in a certain way, and second, you don't even provide the evidence. And so since then, we provide the evidence, which is the second restatement generation, which makes it more transparent, more open to criticism, um, but still leaves open the third criticism that from different perspectives, I think Beth and I on the one side and Judy on the other have said, what's the actual um, authority of these texts and what's the political legitimacy of these texts? Because they are engagements in... Uh, in, in, in lawmaking, they're not purely 
stating something, they're also um, proscribing something. To some extent, I think the answer is in, in, in the process, right? So um, French codification, just to say that, French codification is not written on a blank slate. Right? Jim Gordley has written that up, how much codification actually emerges from certain, from concrete uh, conflicts in the same way, in that sense, as the, um, uh, as the common law. I, as an outsider and um, foreigner who has studied codifying in, in, in Germany a lot and has been an advisor to two projects, I've actually been mostly impressed by the by the process, which you leave out today, right? You say this is just because one expert from the left, one expert from the right. But there's a room, remarkably, I would have to say, of 40 people with often very different ideological perspectives who are very constructively trying to say, how do we frame this, um, the, the, um, this project in a, in, a, in a valuable way? And that's, I think, one way where the value of a restatement uh, can lie. I'm, and critical of aspects of, of the restatement and substance, not just because I don't like where the law stands, but also because I think some of it could have been restated differently. Um, and yeah, no, let me, let me leave the other part for, for, for tomorrow. Sorry. Great. Uh, Beth, you also have. This was, was really just a, a two-finger comment about um, what judges make of, of the restatements. I mean, there, there are plenty of judges who interrogate it and reject it and use, you know, come to their own conclusions, but there are plenty of judges who cited the restatement third, and I, I assume that'll be true now, too. It, it, for the restatement third, I think it was particularly true because there were so many judges who, had, who knew nothing about international law. Um, that's I, I, less true now, but probably still still true. And so perhaps more so, certainly I think more so with the restatement third uh, in this area than in, in some of the other restatement areas. Great. You want to have some closing words? You have sure. So I, I teach contract law, um, which, I, which I love. And I, I teach the restatement uh, second of contracts quite considerably. That's, you know, my students are consulting that every day in contracts. They have not been consulting Restatement Third of Foreign Relations Law every day in Foreign Relations Law, uh, nor unless I radically do my syllabus are they going to be consulting Restatement Fourth in every way, uh, every day. One thing about Restatement of Contracts, I, I, I love it, and yet today's points do make me feel like maybe these restatements should have sunset clauses whereby they automatically uh, explode if a new restatement has not been done um, within a certain period of time, because the restatement of contracts right now in some ways is by its existence and force holding together a field that uh, maybe should be five different fields, um, one for consumer contracts, and now of course they're doing a restatement of consumer contracts, one for sort of other, some other types, one for particular issues in, um, in, in particular subject areas, land or, or something like that. And so I think there is, um, I think we could bring in some of our, our legislative concepts, sort of creative legislative procedural devices into how we think about what the restatements uh, are good for and this question of timing. Because I, I certainly agree with, with today that once you've started the process, your choice set is different from the question of whether you start the process uh, in the first place, but we are in foreign relations law, unlike in, in international law, in constitutional law, and on administrative law per se, we, ha we have this 
um, this project, and in some ways, it's committed to the the academy to figure be the leaders to figure out what to what to do with it and when to when to end it. Um, so I'll, I will uh, stop there um, just to say thank you, everybody who, who gave comments to me. This is incredibly helpful. Anybody else? No.